The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 18 through 38. Hear the word of the Lord. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts me, I say, accepts anyone I send, accepts me. And whoever accepts me, accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Well, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which, which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Sorry about that. My name is Soon Pak, one of the pastors here, and uh, it's a joy to rest and to worship together. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words to us, how it can call us to new life, to transform us, to challenge us, and uh, lead a new life into obedience, not by our own works, but only by the grace you freely offer to us in your Son. And thank you by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you can illuminate these words for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1910, at the turn of the last century, people were feeling tension and angst. Uh, they had hoped, as the new century turned over, that the world would be different and things would be so much better than it was in the prior century. Uh, and they were feeling this angst in the midst of political and global divisiveness, uh, injustice among their different people groups of the world, and this growing gap that they were feeling between the haves and the have-nots in 19. 19- 
10. The Times posed this question to uh, prominent thinkers and leaders of that time publicly, and they said, what's wrong with the world today? What's wrong with the world? Uh, G.K. Chesterton, the notable writer, thinker, uh, theologian, and Christian, uh, wrote in and gave a two-word response. Uh, He says, I am. What's wrong with the world today? I am. When we see injustice in the world, division in the world, corruption in the world, we want something external to explain it all away. But what Chesterton was saying, and it actually starts with the internal, that our very selves and what we bring to the table, that there's something in us that's corrupt, divided, and unjust. But what is that something? In our modern 2023, it it may be a word that we may be a little less familiar with, especially if you didn't grow up in the church. Uh, You may see it in marketing ads to describe something decadent or maybe in a playful indulgence. But what the scripture says, that thing that's broken, what's wrong with the world is this. It's this word sin. That's what makes up all the things we feel, that tension in the world that we say something's not right. And even when we speak of sin from a Christian perspective, sometimes we fall short of the weight of what it is or even the impact or the consequences or maybe even misunderstand it. Uh, Before moving to North Carolina, uh, our family lived in Michigan for seven years. Many of you know this. I don't know if you know this. The winters are a little bit harsher than they are down here in North Carolina. Uh, You know, there's a lot of good things and a lot of bad things about it, but one of the things is uh, the havoc it plays on the road system. As the snow melts, the water gets into the crevices and it it, uh, freezes and expands and it cracks. And if you've lived up north, you've probably driven on sections of road that you're like, wow, that's pretty awful. This is a section of road, uh, a literal section of the road I take when I go, when I used to drive from home uh, to work every day. Like soon, was there an earthquake? No, that's just winter in Michigan. Uh, you know, but you do get better at it. Like as you're driving, it's only like a four mile stretch, but you know, on this section of the road, you stay in the right lane. And on this section of the road, there's a big pothole next to the gas station. So you lean on the far edge of that right lane to get past it. And the longer you're there, the better you get at navigating those roads. So I just wanted you to see this picture. So the next time, or later today, when you're driving home and you see that little divot on the road and you start complaining, just we thank the Lord and with gratitude. Uh, over time, you get better at it, right? And that's how we sometimes treat sin. We say, well, there's these sins in my life, and as I mature and get older, I just know how to navigate around it. These pitfalls to avoid. I know I should lean on this side or move on this side, and the older we get, the longer we walk with Jesus. We think sin is something we just can keep avoiding as we keep moving towards the right direction. But that's not how Scripture portrays sin. It's not an impersonal force that is a pitfall in your life journey. It's actively pursuing you to destroy everything you are in your life. Sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. Romans 7.11 says, For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. And even in John 10.10 says, thief, the enemy, the father of sin, sin that's prevalent in our world, says it's come to steal, kill, and destroy. Sin is center stage in our passage today as we read. 
It's center stage as Jesus is exposing what sin can do and how we should run, how we should walk our lives in response to that sin. Three ways he talks about it. The defining of sin in our text, the defeat of sin, and finally, the deception of sin, the powerful deception of sin in our lives. The first defining of sin. Three times in John 13, uh, he announces to his disciples that a betrayer is in their midst. 13.10, and you are clean after you have washed the feet of the disciples, though not every one of you. 13.18, fulfill this passage of scripture, he says, he who has shared my bread has turned against me. And finally, explicitly in verse 21, he says, very truly I tell you, one of you, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus is announcing to the group that someone who had labored alongside him for three years, that had broken bread with him, had lived life with him and labored and ministered with him is now going to betray him. And it's so foreign to the disciples, they're not getting it. Even when Judas leaves, they're not understanding what's happening. And it's juxtaposing the very setting in which they are in. I think most of us, when we think of this scene, we think of Da Vinci's uh, The Last Supper. Uh, I think we know this is not how they were sitting in that moment. They just posed that way for uh, the artist. (laughs) We'll move on. Uh, No. In the ancient Near East, in that first century, how they would be seated is on the floor. In reality, they're in this U pattern this U-shape with Jesus prominently in the center of it all, the prominent host of this meal. And in the ancient Near East, and even still in Eastern culture, uh, you just don't sit wherever you want when you go to dinner. When you go out, there's actually places where people are supposed to sit, and it can get confusing because it's a circle table, and you're like, where are you supposed to sit? And they're like, no, we know where you're supposed to sit, and the host has placed it out because every seat uh, serves a purpose. Here's Jesus who's prominent in that moment. Now, where's Judas sitting in this setting? We know from the text that John is on one side, right? But Judas is most likely on the very other side or very close by because Jesus is near enough to reach over and give him the piece of bread for the host to take food from his own plate and give it to a guest in that context was a sign of great honor and favor. Jesus is doing everything with purpose. Why is he feeding Judas? One uh, theologian and commentator talks about it this way at this table that Jesus has said and purposely sat every person. says this, Jesus was still exercising every opportunity for the redemption of his betrayer. Painful as it was for Jesus to be betrayed by one who ate from his own table, he did not give himself over to the bitterness but continually sought the spiritual blessing of the one who abused that trust. There's this tension between Jesus' grace and the sinfulness of man all together at his table. In the midst of this horrific sin, Jesus welcomes this person to his table and places him at a seat of honor. He does not ignore sin, minimize sin, explain it away, but rather pursues Judas even in this moment. And what does Judas do? And I think this is the defining moment of sin in our world and the hearts of man. 
says, verse 27, as soon as Judas took the bread, it says, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus had said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Jesus had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. We don't fall into sin. Sin desires to have full mastery over us. And what does it do to Jesus? When sin is taken completely over his heart, it causes him to leave the face of the dear Savior, to walk away from his wonderful face and literally walk into the darkness of night. Sin offers us more and more and more and more until we realize it's too late, that we walk so far away from the light and darkness has enshrouded us completely. For Judas, in this, in this moment, he is in the very the pinnacle of darkness of his own heart. James Montgomery Boyce, who's a pastor and theologian and and writer, he talks about Judas as this unique individual still. And he says, Judas, I am convinced, was not just a mistaken individual. He was a deceiver, a devil, a hypocrite par excellence. And what he's saying is that Judas isn't, shouldn't be someone relatable to us because of his role in Jesus' betrayal. And I, I think he's right in the sense that Judas is the penultimate picture of the ugliness of sin But Boyce goes on to say this, that Judas lived with the others and pretended that he was one of them. And while deep in his heart, he was rebelling against everything that Jesus Christ had taught him. See, the full corruption of sin is on full display in the life of Judas. It is Judas who betrays Jesus and sets in motion for Jesus' walk to the cross. And the irony of this, Moses, that sin should be celebrating this victory over Jesus, it's ironic because it's actually Jesus' victory over sin. And we get to the second part, is the defeat of sin. Verse 31, when he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified. As Judas wanders into the darkness of sin, Jesus says, now the Son of God is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and glorify him at once. It is my children, I will be with you only a little longer. I'm sorry. My children, I will be with you only a little, little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. With Judas departed, Jesus turns now to the path before him. It is clear that his words that the cross before him uh, was not just an act of betrayal from Judas, but a glorification from the Father, for himself and God the Father. The cross is the central moment in the history of mankind, the history of all things. It's in the cross that creation has been waiting and longing for the atonement of the wrong that was found in the garden through Adam. The future of all spiritual blessing is in the cross. And even in the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, it's looking to the picture of the cross. And it's in the cross where it, it looks like the enemy and sin may have won, that sin has finally triumphed over Jesus, but it is the very opposite. 
1 Corinthians 15 says this, that oh, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the beauty of this moment in the cross. And without faith, this must all look silly. If you're not one who follows Jesus and understands the grace he offers and the pinnacle of what the cross is, this all looks silly. And imagine if you're at a sporting event and every time the opponent scores a touchdown or scores a bucket or a point, you start celebrating. Everyone look at you like, what is this person doing? It looks silly to the world, but if you have faith, it is the very beauty of this revelation that should overwhelm us each and every day. John Calvin talks about the cross in this way. He says, in the cross of Christ, as in the splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. This is the moment Jesus says, as Judas is leaving to betray, the glorification of Jesus and God, they look at it and say, it is the pinnacle, the, the ultimate display of God's goodness in the world. How is God glorified in the cross? See, God's perfect justice is on display. If Judas is the penultimate ugliness of sin, the cross is the ultimate. God sees all the ugliness in the world, the darkness in the world, the injustice in the world, the sin in the world, the sin in our own hearts, and he does not look over it, but pours his his reconciling wrath upon sin. All the evil and hatred, all the things that make you look out and say, this is not right. God says, I agree, and here's my wrath, and I'm pouring it out. But it does not pour upon us, but through grace instead poured upon Jesus on the cross. Jesus was sinless and perfect without blemish, and God pours his wrath upon him. And in return, what do we receive? The perfect righteousness of Jesus, that same unblemishing that Jesus carries, he gives to those who, in faith, turn to him. That is the glory of God displayed upon the cross. In the cross, we see how much God hates sin, and in the same breath, how much he loves you and me. In the cross, we see God's perfect justice and perfect faithfulness to his people. He's telling the disciples, this is what's happening. This is the moment I will be glorified. And he turns to the disciples and says this, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In the response of the cross, how should we live our lives, Jesus? Now that we fully understand what you meant in those words as you talked about going to the cross, how should we live? He says, this is the way you should live. Love as I have loved you. And others will know that you belong to me. The markers in which you will be known in the world around you, amongst your neighbors, that you belong to Jesus isn't necessary in your doctrine, in your theology, in your stances, or even your convictions, but in the way you love one another. Jesus says, just love one another. It seems so simple. But what gets in the way? Sin. And this is the dangerous part of it. It's the deception of sin. The deception of sin. Verse 33 and then 36 to 38. Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come. 
And Simon Peter jumps in. Simon Peter asks him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow me, you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. As Jesus explains to the disciples the unique journey ahead of them, Peter jumps in, and throughout the Gospels, uh, Peter is portrayed as a passionate person, uh, someone who kind of jumps in and acts before he really thinks things through. Uh, He's loyal, and he's all in with Jesus. Uh, It's almost though he doesn't hear what Jesus is saying, and he's really only focused on what he can do. Have you ever been in that situation or been around someone who's kind of just listening but not really listening, just waiting to share what he really or she wants to say? Uh, If you're that person, don't raise your hand. (laughs) But this is Peter. But there's something deeper I think Jesus is trying to expose. And he's trying to expose the deceptive power of sin disguised as sincere faith. Here's another way to put it. There's a desire in all of us Christian or not a Christian, if you're exploring who God is, so glad you're here. But there's a desire in all of us to believe in a false version of ourselves that we think is better for others to see in order to hide the true version of ourselves we don't think anyone would truly understand. I'll say it again. There's a desire in all of us to believe in a false version of ourselves that we think is better for others to see in order to hide the true version of ourselves we don't think anyone will truly understand. If someone really knew who we were, they'll think less of me. So I'll put on a frost version of myself so they'll think more of me. And it happens so quickly, friends. It's so deceptive and so quickly that can happen. About a month ago, uh, Aaron and I were looking at our, our credit card bills and she noticed there were about three or four charges all on the same day from our Apple account. And she looks like, hey, do you know what these charges are? And I'll show you what they were. And it's a little embarrassing, so I'm going to ask a little grace. Uh, But a couple, maybe a a few weeks before, in the middle of the night, I woke up, couldn't go back to bed. I pulled out my phone. I started playing a little game, got stuck on a certain level. uh, And I I proceeded to purchase like three or four uh, uh, things to help me get through. I can feel the judgment. Please let it go. so what did I tell her? She'd say, hey, do you know what these charges are? Did I say that? Nope. I felt embarrassed, to be honest, that a grown man spent actual money uh, to play a silly game to get past a level. And something happened so quickly that I didn't even realize it. She said, hey, do you know what these charges are? Rolled off my tongue. Oh, maybe the kids bought something on their devices. <laughs> now, I threw the kids under the bus. Now, I, I have to confess, well, I'll share, I mean, almost very quickly, uh, I confessed to Aaron and apologized and said I was embarrassed. But, and I have to say, the look your spouse will give you <laughs> when you share with them, hey, I'm a, a grown adult who paid actual money for a game uh, and then blamed it on your children, <laughs> it's a very humbling moment. Peter is presenting to Jesus that he's a faithful giant, but his true self is a weak and cowardly denier. 
But the grace of Jesus is this. He sees right through it. He sees right through Peter. And he sees through right, right through you and me. And he calls him out. He wasn't going to let Peter parade himself under the deception of sin for the sake of false righteousness. Peter, let me explain to you. Your heart is blind. Without me, the power of sin has overwhelmed you and blinded you. There's no amount of work in you that can save yourself. Only I can do that on the cross. You can't follow me. Only I can do that. And if you don't get that, you'll never get the grace I'm offering you. There are many common elements to Judas and Peter. Both were disciples of Jesus. Both walked with him. Both betrayed Jesus. But one, only one understood on the other side of the cross that Christ is enough to cover his own sin. No more downplaying, no more hiding, no more disguising, just ugly sin. Triumph, but an even greater grace. This is what Jesus offers you and I. We come into this moment and says, Jesus, I, I don't even know what to say, but here, let me confess the worst of me, the ways I fail in so many ways. And overshouting, overwhelming is the greater grace he offers you and I in the cross of Jesus Christ. We're going to close our time with a, a time of confession of our sins an assurance of the gospel in Jesus, a corporate confession of sin together. I'm going to walk us through it, and we're going to pray together this corporate prayer, and I'm going to give you some time to pray silently to him alone. But first, let us pray this confession together. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in which we can be changed and grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen.